Hello, this is your fertility pharmacist. This podcast is for women who are trying to overcome infertility. If you keep a pulse on late-breaking fertility research, it could positively alter the course of your fertility journey like it has for me. A few weeks ago in podcast episode 12, I spoke about natural cycles leading up to the transfer of frozen embryos. Well, not all women can or should be attempting natural cycles without hormones before big transfer day, so it seems only fair to bring up important research going on with artificial cycles. Today, we're going to be focusing on IVF cycles that involve taking hormones, most likely estrogen, to get ready for transfer day. We'll also be talking about frozen, not fresh embryo transfers from here on out. As we all know, the main goal of IVF is to produce a live, healthy baby. Reproductive medicine is still rapidly evolving, and there's a major question mark about how to best use progesterone for embryo transfer. Before we talk more about this question mark, I want to make sure we're all on the same page about progesterone. Progesterone is one of the primary hormones made by a woman's uterus in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. With progesterone, the endometrial lining gets ready to receive and latch onto an embryo if one's lucky enough to pass its way. In an IVF cycle, past studies have shown that if a woman's progesterone levels get too low, her risks of miscarriage go up. To lower that miscarriage risk, a lot of fertility clinics will monitor progesterone levels and recommend a progesterone prescription to a woman who's getting ready to transfer an embryo. In embryo transfer, progesterone has been given as vaginal gel, as vaginal tablets, as an intramuscular injection, as a subcutaneous injection, and as oral tablets. Unfortunately, all of these different types of progesterone lead to different responses, so the fertility field is trying to figure out what is the best way to give progesterone and how much. Which brings us to the progesterone question of today. Between intramuscular progesterone and progesterone in a vaginal gel, which is more likely to help IVF pregnancies go full term? The study that sought to answer this question was just published July 1st in the journal Fertility Research and Practice. Access to this article is free, and I've posted a link to it in the show notes at yourfertilitypharmacist.com. The study came out of the OB-GYN department at one of Harvard Medical School's main teaching hospitals. Taking place from 2014 to early 2019, 1,710 women were involved in the study. The women in the study fell into one of two groups. Those who took intramuscular progesterone, which for short is called IMP, and this makes me think of Tyrion Lannister, and those who took a vaginal gel called crinone. The doctors for these women had chosen whether or not to give them IMP or crinone, and almost 1,600 doctors chose IMP for their lady patients, compared to just 100 doctors choosing crinone. Though it wasn't stated, I suspect that more doctors had originally chosen IMP because it was given once a day as a 50 milligram intramuscular shot, whereas the crinone was given two times a day as 90 milligrams of an 8% vaginal gel. Though lopsided with the groups from the start, I suspect they would have had even fewer women in the crinone group had the study not been so inclusive. As part of its inclusivity, women with biological or donated embryos could join, gestational carriers could join, embryos that went through genetic testing could join, and it didn't matter if the embryos had come from IVF or intracytoplasmic sperm injection, aka ICSI. The only real exclusion was if women were transferring more than one embryo. And that exclusion makes sense because there are more safety risks if transferring more than one embryo. 
To get ready for embryo preparation, the women took medication to stimulate and mature their eggs. The dates and the doses of who took what were not mentioned in that paper. The eggs were combined with sperm and IVF or ICSI to make the embryos. Then the embryos were cultured till days 5 or 6 and graded as good, fair, or poor quality embryos. Thereafter, the embryos were cryogenically frozen. When the time came to dethaw the embryos for transfer, the women first took some form of estrogen as part of the artificial cycle preparation. Five days before transfer, the women started either the imp or crinone. Eleven days after the embryo transfer, the clinic would take a HCG level to determine pregnancy. If the woman was pregnant, she continued on progesterone for 10 more weeks until it was discontinued. Okay, since you now have the gist of the study, with even more details available in the show notes, let's move on to the results. The IMP group wound up having more births than the crinone group. 47.4% of the women in the IMP group gave birth compared to 41.4% in the crinone group. So that's 6% difference. Further statistical data, this difference was not large enough to know that it did not occur due to chance. Sometimes, even though a result is considered not significant according to statistical equations, it might still be clinically significant, which means that the results would be enough to change how medicine is practiced. In this case, I do not think the result was clinically significant, for numerous reasons. The first reason, which I've mentioned before, was that there were far fewer people in the crinone group, and this might have been too few people to figure out if the drug really works in the population at large. Also, the paper put out baseline characteristics about the embryos and the women in the study, and there were several differences between the IMP and the crinone groups, which the authors did not go into. The IMP group might have had a leg down in the study. More women were considered obese, more women were using donor embryos, and there were fewer good embryos in that IMP group in general. Also, more of the IMP embryos were biopsied. Since these two groups weren't necessarily starting out on equal footing, how can we trust that they ended on equal footing? I can't trust it. And as a pharmacist, I also took issue with the medications. The study didn't inform us about the doses of the stim meds or the estrogen doses, and those could have impacted results. Furthermore, the imp medication was compounded by two local Boston pharmacies. Compounds can be made from proprietary recipes, and this would make it hard to use this exact same imp medication if going to a fertility clinic somewhere like LA or Texas. I have many more gripes with the study, which I've saved for the show notes online. Point is, there are enough weaknesses in the study to make the usefulness of their findings questionable. If and when I unfreeze my embryos, would I be willing to try crinone over imp? The only other study conducted on imp versus crinone shows the same results so I would be willing to try either drug if those were my only two choices. Honestly, I'm chomping at the bit here to say more about progesterone options, but I'm going to hold off for now in the interest of keeping you awake. If you're interested, progesterone will definitely come up again in the next episode of Your Fertility Pharmacist. This is Your Fertility Pharmacist. Thanks for tuning in. 